Section 24 of The Colonel's Dream This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White The Colonel's Dream by Charles Chestnut Section 24, Chapter 24 Ben's fight with young Fetters became a matter of public comment the next day after the ball. His conduct was cited as sad proof of the degeneracy of a once fine old family. He had been considered shiftless and not well educated. But no one had suspected that he was a drunkard and a rowdy. Other young men in the town, high-spirited young fellows with plenty of money, sometimes drank a little too much and occasionally, for a point of honor, gentlemen were obliged to attack or defend themselves. But when they did, they used pistols, a gentleman's weapon. Here, however, was an unprovoked and brutal attack with fists upon two gentlemen in evening dress and without weapons to defend themselves. One of them, said the Anglo-Saxon, the son of our distinguished fellow-citizen and colleague in the legislature, the Honorable William Fetters. When Colonel French called to see Miss Laura the afternoon of next day after the ball, the ladies were much concerned about the affair. "'Oh, Henry!' exclaimed Miss Laura. "'What is this dreadful story about Ben Dudley? They say he was drinking at the hotel and became intoxicated, and that when Barclay Fetters and Tom McRae went into the hotel, he said something insulting about Graciela, and when they rebuked him for his freedom, he attacked them violently.' and that when finally subdued he was put to bed unconscious and disgracefully intoxicated. Graciela is very angry, and we all feel ashamed enough to sink into the ground. What can be the matter with Ben? He hasn't been around lately, and he has quarreled with Graciela. I never would have expected anything like this from Ben. It came from his great-uncle Ralph, said Mrs. Treadwell. Ralph was very wild when he was young but settled down into a very polished gentleman. I danced with him once when he was drunk, and I never knew it. It was my first ball, and I was intoxicated myself with excitement. Mother was scandalized, but father laughed and said boys would be boys. But poor Ben hasn't had his uncle's chances, and while he has always behaved well here, he could hardly be expected to carry his liquor like a gentleman of the old school. My dear ladies, said the colonel, we have heard only one side of the story. I guess there's no doubt Ben was intoxicated, but we know he isn't a drinking man, and one drink, or even one drunk, doesn't make a drunkard, nor one fight a rowdy. Barclay Fetters and Tom McRae are not immaculate, and perhaps Ben can exonerate himself. I certainly hope so, said Miss Laura earnestly. I am sorry for Ben but I could not permit a drunken rowdy to come to the house, or let my niece be seen upon the street with him. It would only be fair, said the colonel, to give him a chance to explain when he comes in again. I rather like Ben. He has some fine mechanical ideas, and the making of a man in him, unless I am mistaken. I have been hoping to find a place for him in the new cotton mill when it is ready to run. They were still speaking of Ben when there was an irresolute knock at the rear door of the parlor in which they were seated. "'Miss Laura! Oh, Miss Laura!' came a muffled voice. "'Can I speak to you a minute?' 
It's mighty particular, Miss Laura. For God it is. Laura, said the colonel, bring Catherine in. I saw that you were troubled once before when you were compelled to refuse her something. Henceforth your burdens shall be mine. Come in, Catherine, he called, and tell us what's the matter. What's your trouble? What's it all about? The woman, red-eyed from weeping, came in, wringing her apron. Miss Laura, she sobbed, and Colonel French. My husband Bud is done gone and gotten into mo' trouble. He's run away from Mr. Fetters, what he was sold back to in the spring, and he's done been fined fifty dollars mo', and is going to be sold back to Mr. Fetters in the morning, for to finish out the old fine and work out the new one. I's been to see him in the yard house, and he say Mr. Haynes, what used to be the constable and is the guard for Mr. Fetters now, beat and abused him so he couldn't stand it, and septin I could pay all them fines, he'll be tucked back there. And he say, if they ever beats him again, they have to kill him, or he'll kill some of them. And Bud is a rash man, Miss Laura, and I'm feared that he'll do what he say. And if they kills him, or he kills any of them, it'll be all the same to me. I'll never see him no more in this world. If I could borrow the money, Miss Laura, Master Colonel, I'd work my fingers to the bone till I paid back the last cent. Uh, if you buy Bud, sir, like you did Uncle Peter, he wouldn't mind working for you, sir, for Bud is a good worker when folks treat him right, and he had never had no trouble nowhere before he come here, sir. How did he come to be arrested the first time? asked the colonel. He didn't live here, sir. I used to live here, and I married him down to Madison where I was working. We fell out one day, and I got mad and left him. It was all my fault, and I've been paying for it ever since. And I come back home and went to work here, and he come after me. And the first day he come, before I knowed he was here, this here Mr. Haynes took him up and locked him up in the yard house, like a hog in a pound. And he didn't know nobody. And they didn't give him no chance to see nobody. And they took him round to Squire Reddick next morning, and fined him and sold him to this here Mr. Fetters for to work out the fine. And I've been wanting all this time to hear from him. And I'd done been and gone back to Madison to look for him and found he was gone, and God knows I didn't know what had become of him, till he run away the other time, and they took him and sent him back again, and he hadn't done nothing the first time, sir, but the Lord know what he won't do if they sends him back any more. Catherine had put her apron to her eyes, and was sobbing bitterly. The story was probably true. The colonel had heard underground rumors about the Fetters plantation and the manner in which it was supplied with laborers and his own experience in old Peter's case had made them seem not unlikely. He had seen Catherine's husband in the justice's court, and the next day in the convict gang behind Turner's buggy. The man had not looked like a criminal. That he was surly and desperate may as well have been due to a sense of rank injustice as to an evil nature. That a wrong had been done under cover of law was at least more than likely but a deed of mercy could be made to right it. The love of money might be the root of all evil, but its control was certainly a means of great good. The colonel glowed with the consciousness of this beneficent power to scatter happiness. Laura, he said, I will attend to this. It is a matter about which you should not be troubled. 
Don't be alarmed, Catherine. Just be a good girl and help Miss Laura all you can. And I'll look after your husband and pay his fine and let him work it out as a free man. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mars Colonel. And Miss Laura. And the Lord is going to bless you, sir, you and my sweet young lady, for being good to poor folks what can't do nothing to help themselves out of trouble, said Catherine, backing out with her apron to her eyes. On leaving Miss Laura, the colonel went round to the office of Squire Reddick, the justice of the peace, to inquire into the matter of Bud Johnson. The justice was out of town, his clerk said, but would be in his office at nine in the morning, at which time the colonel could speak to him about Johnson's fine. The next morning was bright and clear, and cool enough to be bracing. The colonel, alive with pleasant thoughts, rose early, and after a cold bath, and a leisurely breakfast, walked over to the mill site, where the men were already at work. Having looked the work over and given certain directions, he glanced at his watch, and finding it near nine, set out for the justice's office, in time to reach it by the appointed hour. Squire Reddick was at his desk, upon which his feet rested, while he read a newspaper. He looked up with an air of surprise as the colonel entered. "'Why, good morning, Colonel French,' he said genially. I kind of expected you a while ago. The clerk said you might be around, but you didn't come, so I suppose you changed your mind. The clerk said that you would be here at nine, replied the colonel. It is only just nine. Did he? Well, now, that's too bad. I do generally get around about nine, but I was earlier this morning, and as everybody was here, we started in a little sooner than usual. You wanted to see me about Bud Johnson? Yes. I wish to pay his fine and give him work. Well, that's too bad. But you weren't here, and Mr. Turner was. And he bought his time again for Mr. Fetters. I'm sorry, you know, but first come, first served. The colonel was seriously annoyed. He did not like to believe there was a conspiracy to frustrate his good intention but that result had been accomplished, whether by accident or design. He had failed in the first thing he had undertaken for the woman he loved, and was to marry. He would see Fetters' man, however, and come to some arrangement with him. With Fetters, the hiring of the Negro was purely a commercial transaction conditioned upon a probable profit, for the immediate payment of which, and a liberal bonus, he would doubtless relinquish his claim upon Johnson's services. Learning that Turner, who had acted as Fetters' agent in the matter, had gone over to Clay Johnson's saloon, he went to seek him there. He found him and asked for a proposition. Turner heard him out. "'Well, Colonel French,' he replied with slightly veiled insolence, "'I bought this nigger's time for Mr. Fetters, and unless I'm mightily mistaken in Mr. Fetters, no amount of money can get the nigger until he's served his time out.' He's defied our rules, and defied the law, and defied me, and assaulted one of the guards, and he ought to be made an example of. We want to keep him. He's a bad nigger, and we've got to handle a lot of em, and we need him for an example. He keeps us in training. Have you any power in the matter? demanded the colonel, restraining his contempt. Me? No, not me. I couldn't let the nigger go for his weight in gold. 
and wouldn't if I could. I bought him in for Mr. Fetters, and he's the only man that's got any say about him. Very well, said the colonel as he turned away. I'll see Fetters. I don't know whether you will or not, said Turner to himself, as he shot a vindictive glance at the colonel's retreating figure. Fetters has got this country where he wants it, and I'll bet dollars to birdshot he ain't gonna let no coon-flavored northern interloper come down here and mix up with his arrangements, even if it did hail from this town way back yonder. This here nigger problem is a southern problem, and outsiders might as well keep their hands off. Me and Haynes and Fetters is the kind of men to settle it. The colonel was obliged to confess to Miss Laura his temporary setback, which he went around to the house and did immediately. It's the first thing I've undertaken yet for your sake, Laura, and I've got to report failure so far. It's only the first step, she said consolingly. That's all. I'll drive out to Fetter's place tomorrow and arrange the matter. By starting before day, I can make it and transact my business and get back by night without hurting the horses. Catherine was called in and the situation explained to her. Though clearly disappointed at the delay, and not yet free of apprehension that Bud might do something rash, she seemed serenely confident of the colonel's ultimate success. In her simple creed, God might sometimes seem to neglect his black children, but no harm could come to a negro who had a rich white gentleman for friend and protector. End of section 24 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista